Okay, hello everyone. I'm Bambi Francisco and welcome to my very first book reading of Unequally Yoked. So yes, I was supposed to be in Hollywood on stage and speaking to a very good friend of mine about technology, culture, mental health, religion, and media and politics. But then COVID hit. And so here I am at home on a Zoom call and reading my book to everyone from across the country, which is really nice. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. So I have never done a book reading before, let alone a book reading. And so this is a, um, you're gonna have to bear with me also. I do have some folks trying to jump on and um, so I can and hear the ping. So if that is distracting to you, I'm very sorry about that. I might have to turn my phone off, but I need to also time myself because I'm going to do book reading for about 15 minutes. So the way this is going to proceed, I will read parts of my book for 15 minutes and then I'll open this up to a discussion with anybody who wants to ask a question. Now, if there are no questions, then we'll wrap it up and we'll have a very quick, fast book reading. Um, and we'll pick it back up on Thursdays, hopefully at 4 p.m. PST, if that works for everyone. So firstly, I want to talk about the term unequally yoked. So what is the term unequally yoked and what does it mean? And it's a very abstract term. And when I started writing this book in 2017, I would let people know that I was writing a book titled Unequally Yoked, and most of them actually didn't know the term. They were very unfamiliar with the term. Well, in California, let me just let you know, it ranks 35th on the list of religious states. And in my town, two-thirds of the residents here actually do not consider themselves affiliated with any religion. But unequally yoked is a biblical term, hence why they don't understand the term or they weren't familiar with the term. So I shouldn't have been surprised. But I love the term because it's such a beautiful metaphor of our different worldviews. And it comes from the Bible, as I said, and it's also in the book. It's from 1 Corinthians, and in the book, it's actually page 15. In the, in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so as you can see in that verse, it talks about fellowship. It talks about partnerships. It means relationships. The verse is referring to relationships. It's talking to about righteousness and lawlessness. So our views of what is righteous and what is lawless. Now in that verse, it really refers to marriage. So a husband and wife have to be on the same page of what their view of righteousness and lawlessness are. Because if they can't be on the same page of what is good and evil, it's very difficult for them to raise their child. And the Bible warns that, and the Bible warns that you should be equally yoked to your partner. Now, this is not a marriage book, although the first chapter does touch on marriage. 
because it is a microcosm of our relationships with others. And it's not a religious book, although as a Christian conservative, I will tell you that there are elements of Christianity in this book and there's elements of faith. It is, there is a call to action to have some faith in something other than ourselves in order to get out of the mess that we are in in the current environment that we are in. So the term unequally yoked is actually a double entendre. We talked about metaphysical, uh, our metaphysical yokes, that's our yokes with one another. And there's a physical yoke as well. And that is the, and that's also in the Bible. And just to illustrate what a physical yoke is, a yoke is actually a wooden cross piece that binds two oxen together so they can till the field. And the burden of tilling that field or that heavy equipment is distributed across the oxen. So their job is easier. Now take out one ox and replace that ox with a donkey. And you can see that the donkey is going to have a heavier burden because the donkey just can't carry that weight. It's not as heavy, it's not as strong as the ox. And so they are unequally yoked. And as such, they go around in circles killing the field. They can't get their job done. And it's actually not a job that could be full of joy. Tilling the field is now uh, seems very onerous for the for donkey as well as the ox because the yoke actually chafes on both of them. From a metaphysical standpoint, we have to think about our yokes and our relationships with um, in, in different scenarios. So there's a metaphysical yoke between a husband and a wife that I mentioned, man and women, men and women. There's a yoke between parent and child. There's a yoke between teacher and student, uh, as well as Republicans and Democrats. And the book is largely focused on that relationship between Democrats and Republicans. And the yoke that binds them and their united goal, which is to build society. The problem is that shared goal of building society is now is increasingly at risk. And they're under threat and under attack. And they're under attack by the left controlled media that is trying to uh, paint a picture and paint what I call a false narrative. And this false narrative is dividing the country. Now, how does this get back to burdens? Well, they're trying to exploit the burdens of women and they're trying to exploit the burdens of people of color. And they're doing that in order to uh, win you over um, and away from the conservative party and particularly away from our president. So, what is this false narrative? This false narrative is that there is systemic and institutionalized racism in this country. And that is the root of our inequality, but that is just statistically untrue. So let me just give you some statistics here. The number one cause of death, and I'm just gonna look at racism, the number one cause of death for black Americans 44 and under is homicide, not police shootings of unarmed black men. If we look at all kids, and this is gonna sound a little bit morbid, but I want to share this with you to make a point. There are 1,200 deaths by homicide 
1,000 by drug overdosing and 2,200 through suicide. And that's horrible. And no one ever wants to hear that news in every life is important. But if you put that into perspective, there's 56 million children K through 12. So statistically speaking, it's relatively low, thank God. If you think about the number of unarmed Black Americans shot by police officers, there were nine last year, and there's 44 million Black Americans. So as horrific as it is to have anyone shot by the police or by anyone, it is statistically inaccurate to say that it is a crisis. But racism does exist, it's just not systemic. So, and the challenge here, and one of the reasons why I decided to write this book, is because I want my children to understand what the right narrative is and not the false narrative. And now we're seeing that this anti-racism, unconscious bias training is, is, is something that we're adopting in our universities, in our schools, and in our corporations. It's an $8 billion business. We've heard of critical race theory. That's now being taught. We're starting to be taught at schools. And critical race theory is teaching that America was founded or America's institutions are inherently racist. And that's a dangerous narrative. But they have to create this narrative because if you think about it, what is What's the definition of fascism? Hard word to say. It's extreme devotion to one nation and racial purity. This is the direction they want you to think conservatives and Donald Trump is taking this country, moving us to this very far radical ideological view of the world that white supremacists want to keep everyone oppressed. That is not true, and you've seen it, and I've shared it with the statistics. But they're constantly painting this picture of Trump as this Hitler or Mussolini. You've seen it recently with the debates. Have you seen anyone, have you seen any media talk about Joe Biden denouncing Antifa? No, because that's not the narrative they want to propagate. They can't propagate that narrative because the left is always good. It's a moral polarity view of the world. Now, why did I write this book? For one, I didn't think that one person could be that racist and, and create this dialogue. And so I decided to investigate to find out why we have this, why we're having this discussion and how it started. And that's why I want to start with chapter three, which is the false narrative. So with that, with that backdrop, now I'm gonna read the book for 15 minutes. And some of you will fall asleep, hopefully not. But, and then after that, hopefully we can have a discussion afterwards, if there are any questions. If they're not, then we won't have any questions. But I'm going to go ahead and time myself for 15 minutes. And this is chapter three, the false narrative. If we don't believe in free expression for people we despise, we don't believe in it at all. Noam Chomsky. Be it where to go to dinner or how much a nation spends on healthcare 
or eliminating inequalities, progress is made when people compromise. Lasting agreements can only be teached, reached through open conversation. Open conversations can only be both sides are free to make their case. Some conversations are messy and sometimes people take positions they later change and even regret. But the openness of the dialogue is what matters most. Restricted speech is the cornerstone of tyranny. And yet here we are, dangerously flirting with such an authoritarian rule as the protection of a dominant narrative is locking up free speech. What is this narrative? Patriarchal and capitalist system America was founded on is the root cause of all inequality. And taking it one step further, if this system isn't dismantled, then historic, historical inequalities will stay set in social concrete forever. And anyone found to have a dissenting opinion of this narrative is guilty of being part of the problem. Anyone agreeing is safeguarding it. In the long run, like an ox and donkey, unequally yoked together, the pro-actors of this narrative force our national yoke to tilt to one side, forcing the country to go around in circles. This chapter explores how this narrative began to take shape, largely around the treatment of minorities well before Donald Trump sat in the White House. When Trump came into office and became the personification of white male privilege, this narrative became weaponized for the fight against him and his supporters. Moreover, institutionalized bias would become big business as there was an entire country to re-educate and without the narrative, the market would dry up. Much like the systemic misogynistic narrative in the Me Too chapter, that's chapter two. This narrative erupted and was quickly commandeered by political players looking for leverage. The forming of the narrative. When Donald Trump came into office in 2017, his perceived misogyny, transphobia, and xenophobia instantly polarized the country. I was incredulous that one man could unleash such a tsunami of vitriol. As I began to research the origins of the anger, I realized it, it had been brewing for years. In November 2008, history would be made. Barack Obama became the first Black president of the United States. One would think, and many did, the Cultural Revolution, which ascended the first Black man to the White House, meant the country had moved beyond race. Yet something unexpected happened over the course of Obama's two terms. And Lisbeth Grant Britton, an African-American history professor, nailed it when she said Obama's presidency was to, quote, start, not end, a national conversation on race. Only a few months into his presidency in 2009, Obama himself took what many would see as something other than an impartial stance when commenting on the arrest of black Harvard professor, Henry Louis Gates by a white police officer responding to a 9-11 call about a robbery in progress at a residence. Um, I'm just gonna hold right there because I just wanna mention to some people who are texting that you can actually go to Zoom and just type in the uh, meeting ID, which is 846-9643-4619. Um, and of course, if I'm telling you that you're already, you are already um, on, but this is for if you know other people who've been texting me, maybe you can text them and let them know that they can type that in as the meeting ID. Okay, so, 
Only a few months into his presidency in 2009, Obama himself took what many would see as something other than an impartial stance when commenting on the arrest of black Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates by a white police officer and responding to a 911 call about a robbery in progress at a residence. And this is Obama. I don't know, not having been there and not seeing all the facts, what role race played in that. But I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, the Cambridge police acted stupidly in arresting someone, somebody, when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know separate, separate and apart from this incident is that there's a long history in this country of African Americans and Latinos being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately. That's just a fact. Obama went on to say that the event showed how race remains a factor in this society. Obama had thrown the weight of the presidency onto Gates' side of the scales of justice. That if the officer's account was correct, that Gates initially refused to show his ID, accused the officer of being a racist cop, yelled and was disorderly as the officer left the house, it would seem there was much more to the story than Gates, and more importantly, more importantly, Obama were reflecting. Much like the sin of omission so often pinned on President Trump, President Obama elected to only present one side of a case of tremendous importance. Interestingly, Obama took a hit for it. After this remark in a Pew Research survey, 41% disapproved and 29% approved of his statements about the case. No one knew it at the time, but the Harvard fiasco would be Obama's lowest stakes foray into the issues about race in America and race and policing in particular. NPR wrote that as part of a story examining Obama's racial legacy. These accounts are never easy to judge. Was the officer implicitly biased or outright racist? Was Gates immersed in a delusion that he was targeted for the color of his skin? Or could it have been was said of a later incident by Obama's successor that there was fault on many sides. We will never know for sure, but to be clear, Obama took a side, deriding the officer for having acted stupidly and implying that being angry at the police officer was natural and appropriate. Obama had opened the identity politics Pandora's box. In 2013, commenting on Trayvon Martin's killing, Obama building on his prior position said America is not a post-racial society. Once again, placing himself on a side rather in the middle, rather than in the middle of the issue. Even CNN opined, though through the voice of a conservative author, Abigail Thurston, that Obama's words about Martin were possibly due to his wanting disadvantage Americans to believe that he and his family are one of them, despite their life of unparalleled privilege. And he wanted the prosecutors, judge and jury to believe that this was a case about race, where justice demanded a guilty verdict. Thurston doesn't say that this was Obama's motivation, but that reasonable people certainly may suspect. And if so, Obama should be ashamed of his effort to stir America's turbulent, dangerous racial waters, and stir he did. With the backdrop of Obama's comments, NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's August 2016 national anthem protest would become the centerpiece of the national anthem. 
I'm sorry, Net National Conversation on Race. Kaepernick, if you recall, took a knee during the national anthem and said after the game, I am not looking for approval. I have to stand up for people that are oppressed. Now, Kaepernick told Paper Magazine that he was responding to the December 2015 killing of Mario Woods, who died after being shot 20 times by police officers. Sounds pretty horrific, right? But Kaepernick referred to it as a murder. But a video, if you watch this video, a video captured by a bystander is not so unequivocally clear. In the video, you can see Woods resisting arrest, and you can hear an observer shouting to him, drop the knife, multiple times, as Wood meanders around with an increasing number of police gathering and pointing guns at him. It's a scary video, and it's unclear whether Woods might at any moment lunge into the forming crowd. Soon after, Kaepernick started a group called Know Your Rights Camp, which hosts camps around the country with the tagline, love is at the root of our resistance. The group, said Kaepernick, was influenced by the Black Panther movement started in Oakland around 1966. The organization's goal was to, goals were to bring out the true history of Black culture and to put an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of Black people. Now that is 1966. A lot was a lot has changed in 50 years. Why was 2016 the moment of this protest? So four years ago, we hadn't seen a similar level of athlete activism for 20 years. In 1996, Mamond Abdul Rauf protested by refusing to stand during the national anthem. He was sus subsequently suspended by the NBA. Perhaps it's as that saying goes, and 2016 was the time to strike while the iron was hot, Obama was in office. He was taking sides. It was the moment for action. We can see a similar pattern in our history, notably in the 1960s. In the time following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., racial tension was fever pitched, but it was also a decade of significant achievements. At the start of that decade, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy employed affirmative action for the first time ordering federal contractors to treat applicants equally, regardless of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act abolished the Jim Crow laws, tools of segregation dating back to 1877. Following Kennedy's lead, President Lyndon B. Johnson ushered in the Great Society programs, a series of policy initiatives to, induced, to reduce poverty, crime, and abolish inequality, such as requiring requiring government contractors to expand employment for minorities. In spite of all this progress, Black athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos felt there was still more to be done. And back then, there was still more to be done. Standing on the Olympic podium at the 1968 Games, they raised fists covered in Black gloves during the national anthem. And reading their viewpoint certainly makes one sympathetic to their position. Their action was, as Smith told the Smithsonian, a cry for freedom and for human rights. We had to be seen because we couldn't be heard. As a symbol of African-American poverty, Smith and Carlos wore black socks and shoes in memory of the lynchings. To say President Obama's taking of sides was anything less than intentional would be to do him a disservice. He saw his presidency as an opportunity to tilt the scales and he pushed the race issue onto the national stage.
By the time Trump came to office, the race debate was in full rancorous swing. And hopefully I'll get through this. This is Obama's white bear problem. In 1863, Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote this, try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear. And you will see that cursed thing will come to mind every minute. American social psychologist Daniel Wegner used those words to form the ironic process theory or the white bear problem. The idea is that if one suppresses an idea long enough, it will continue to surface. Another way to look at this is to think of when you're trying to save someone from the, an accident by saying, for instance, watch out for that pole, but you end up hitting that pole yourself. Or when you teach someone a sport, say skiing, and you're purposely trying to avoid saying, don't hit that tree. You don't want to say, don't hit that tree, because they'll be so focused on the tree, they won't see the clear path. So it was the case for Obama, who refused to say the words Islamic terrorism or Islamic extremism for fear Americans would be racist against Muslims. Ironically, the debate he sparked called even more attention to anti-Islamic sentiment. When 49 people died in a terrorist attack in Orlando in an Orlando nightclub in 2016 by a man who pledged allegiance to ISIS, Obama could only say it was an act of terror and hate. At that point, Obama had been president for eight years, and during his two terms, 91 people had died and 370 injured at the hands of Islamic terrorists, inspired by Osama bin Laden, who was killed during the Obama era. For nearly a decade, Obama resisted saying those words, at times taking a defensive tone on the issues. His unwillingness to identify terrorists as Islamic even received pushback from mothers whose sons had died fighting them. My son gave his life for acts of terrorism. Do you still believe that the acts of terrorism are done for the self-proclaimed Islamic religious motive? And if you do, why do you still refuse to use the term Islamic terrorists? An audience member asked Obama during a CNN town hall. He had this to say to the Gold Star Mother. But what I have been careful about when I describe these issues is to make sure that we do not lump these murderers into the billion Muslims that exist around the world, including in this country, who are peaceful, responsible, and who are our fellow troops and police officers and firefighters and teachers and neighbors and friends. Ahem, Mr. President. You are lumping them in if you don't break them apart. In an attempt to deflect attention away from Muslims, Obama offered up a clear defense. That's my timer. And I'll just finish this. I don't often come in defense of Hillary Clinton, but she was right when she told CNN's New Day, from my perspective, it matters what we do more than what we say. I have clearly said, whether you call it radical jihadism or radical Islamism, I'm happy to say either. I think they mean the same thing. Obama should have let that polar bear go. Just the discussion around whether to say Islam or not perpetuated the idea that somehow Muslims needed protection from being alienated, alienated alienated in America. While well-intentioned, perhaps, Obama's suppression of the word Islam ironically made more people think of identity in a racially divisive way. And then I go on to talk about Trump win, Trump's 
when and racism explodes into a fireball. But that was 15 minutes and that was my book reading. Um, I think that I think that you get a little bit of a taste of the forming of the narrative. And when you think about reading the news and um, hearing the, the debates and wondering why the media is always trying to paint Trump as the divisive one, as the racist one, as the white supremacist, think back to this book, The Making of the False Narrative, and ask yourself why we don't hear these type of negative um, pictures painted on, say, a Biden. Why is it that the attacks are always on Trump and conservatives? And why is it that this narrative seems to never change? Well, the narrative can't change. They don't want it to change. And that is a big fear. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book is for you to be able to see the narrative for what it is and for you to be able to look critically at the media and what you read and maybe read something else um, to help you get a fuller picture. So with that, um, I don't see anything in the Q&A, so I'm happy to, to end it here, but I am very grateful for everyone for, for attending my first reading. Uh, if you plan on, um, oh, here's a, what was the most challenging chapter to write? That's an interesting question. They were all pretty challenging. Um, I will tell you that my favorite chapter to write was the final chapter, which was the case for Judeo-Christian faith. I think the fastest chapter I wrote was the BLM and COVID chapter, and that was quite challenging only because I had to do it so quickly. I probably wrote that in two or three months. Um, I think that the, do you say, okay. The most challenging to write. Yeah. So did I answer that? Um, if I, I, I think that the, mo the one that I really enjoyed writing was the case for Judeo-Christian faith. It probably was also the hardest because I, I, I had to think about the human condition. And that was one of the points I was trying to make in this book is that these false narratives that we keep hearing really um, do not consider our human condition and which is that evil is not outside of us it is inside of us and it is you know sin very plainly and this false narrative that we have to focus so much on um I have to focus so much on uh, racism as the predominant sin is just not seeing the full picture and is is really not helping anyone be accountable to themselves Thanks for that question, Michelle. So, okay, well, it's 4.35.
And I'm going to try to do this again at, um, on Thursdays and um, that I have another question. Uh, okay. What is the other side saying uh, about this false narrative? Are you saying, when you say the other side, are you saying the other side is, um, is the conservative side? Or is the other side the, um, the progressive side? Not actually very, the question is, there's, if there's a false narrative but that is being pushed, what is the other side saying? Or what is the other side saying with regards, I guess you are saying, what's the conservative narrative? You know, I think that, and, and this is where it gets a little bit tough. Um, my friend Peter gave me an endorsement and said, I'm behind enemy lines, behind two factions. And one, I would say the, um, there's the atheist faction and then there's the democratic faction. So I wouldn't say that necessarily that the conservative view is a Christian view, which is my view and my lens on this. Um, but I would say from the political standpoint, their narrative is that their racism does exist and sexism does exist, but, um, and all sorts of sins do exist, but it's not necessarily by one party, uh, certainly not one race and certainly not one gender. And they believe that this country was built on a Judeo Christian capitalist patriarchal system is the greatest country on earth and our traditions aren't perfect and we have unequal outcomes, but we can't just throw it all away and dismantle it and start all over as though our new creation is going to be any better. And we just can't have equal outcomes and we'll never have equal outcomes. Um, my book tries to, um, to, uh, to show that we can only have equal outcomes under God, but even there's a, there's a good portion of the conservatives who probably don't believe in that. So my, my viewpoint is more of a conservative Christian viewpoint, and I'm sure there's people in the Democratic Party that actually believe that as well. The people who disagree with me say that this country is is that there is systemic racism in this country and it is something that people don't recognize inside themselves. Um, some of their big uh, leading lights would be Robin D'Angelo and I think Ibram Kendi, uh, who would say that, that the racism is the biggest evil and you need to cleanse it. And in, in fact, it's invisible. And you have to live, I say, you have to live a self, life of self-flagellation um, where you really have to work out uh, the racism in your heart. Now, I, I agree that we can all be racist, uh, but I think it's missing the big point that, um, that we all have, we all have that inside of us. And, and again, it's not just one party and one, uh, one race. So that's my challenge with that narrative that they're pushing. So, thanks everyone. I'm going to start again at four o'clock next week. We will get into more of this false narrative 
but I hope you stick around because some of the best parts are in my chapter six, which is the case for Judeo and Christian faith. Um, have a good evening and thank you so much for joining my first book club and book reading.